0: Welcome to Awaken Podcast. I
1: hope you enjoy the teaching. Peace. For some, the word strikes home. Maybe for the soldier or the the family of a soldier. Or for the child whose parents are constantly fighting with words and fists, and that peace comes when they're gone. Or for the mother who has four kids running around the house, wanting this and that, crying, laughing, yelling, and the moment they're all asleep is when it happens. Or for the newlywed, wondering when the next paycheck is going to come, and finally it comes in the mail. But for others, the word is read over, ignored, in one ear and out the other, maybe even spat out. The adult sitting in church for Advent, hearing a sermon on peace for the 30th time. The Iraqi citizen hearing from the U.S. that peace will come and is near. What do we do with that? This word that is heard and understood in so many different ways, is there one definition, one way to understand it? A lot of people think peace is when something is going wrong, when people are killed or loved ones are sick. That is when peace comes, that is when peace seems most appealing. But what about peace in the mundane, peace in everyday life of doing dishes and brushing our teeth? What does that look like? This peace cannot be brought on in the everyday, in the day-to-day stuff by a being that shows up only when things are wrong, right? Or is that when we truly experience peace? Standing in front of the toothpaste, toothpaste-spattered mirror Running the brush over each and every tooth, feeling the bristles on the gums, on the gums, and because of that feeling, knowing you're alive. Or walking down the street, carefully stepping on each uneven piece of concrete, seeing the jogger run by, and the mother walking with her three children. Is real peace brought about by a being present, by being present in the present, ex- by experiencing the fullness of everything around you, whether that is human interaction or with nature? Yes. I think we owe it to peace, a word that a word which so many thing, which means so many things to so many people. A word felt by some and spat out by others, a word we spend our whole lives hoping for. I think we owe it to peace to instead make peace the definition. Instead of peace being the absence of war, what if war is the absence of peace? What if putting on a uniform, holding a gun and shooting the enemy is the is the absence of this tapping into the fullness of being present in the present to nature and human interaction? And the parents who are constantly fighting, in their fight is the absence of peace. And when, fine, and when we are finally able to see those around us interact in a way that brings harmony, that is peace. Perhaps then, the air passing over our vocal cords, forming the noise that is understood as peace, is not something we ignore or fear or see as the absence of. Peace is the definition.
0: Hi, my name is Emily. And today, my art is expressing peace. Um, This is a drawing I did that's basically uh, my kind of satirical take on a World War II propaganda poster. Because the more that I thought about peace, um, and I thought about it a lot, because being someone who is a little more cynical than they should be, I, I struggled with this one. And I thought, you know, peace isn't about these grand schemes that other people are planning and implementing somewhere else. But pieces about us, pieces um, about our personal decisions, um, pieces how we decide to react to the world every single day, uh, pieces how we decide to interpret what happens to us and others around us, um, pieces turning the other cheek when you would rather pummel someone, uh, pieces pieces choosing to see the good in people when you just got ripped off, and so. Um, I think peace is, peace is about us and what we individually are doing. Uh, so today, we invite you to celebrate the arrival of peace.
2: Well, <clears throat> let's pray, huh? And go home, because that was a bit of a joke. Some of you are like <laughs> bowing your heads, you know, it's was like, uh, who knew that we had these prophets and teachers among us, but when we give them a microphone and give them a shot, Love it, Luke, Emily, thank you. Um, if you're new, uh, we are in week two of an Advent series that we've creatively entitled "Advent." <clears throat> and uh, if you don't know, uh, the church, of course, has celebrated Advent for you know millennia, and these these four weeks prior to Christmas in these words: hope, peace, love, joy. And so uh, each week we've commissioned uh, uh, an artist and a writer and uh, um, these are the first two that we've got. So thank you guys for, for that. Um, if you have your Bibles, turn to Matthew chapter ten. Matthew chapter ten, if you would. <clears throat> do you think the Vikings are going to win today? Can we just have a moment? Uh, thank you. You do. You do. We should have one called Faith, and then we just take a picture of Bruce Morgan you who know, thinks the Vikings are going to win. That's the definition of faith, right there, baby. That's the definition of faith. That's great. Um, we're going to look at a text. Uh, as as I um, kind of prepared for this series, we we wanted to, we knew we wanted to do these these art um, installations, but then I started thinking about what could we what could we teach or what could we go through. And so my hope is to find uh, mind the scriptures for stories of the things that. Uh, that we'll be discussing. And today is probably the most, um, the one that is the furthest from the idea. Uh, I've picked a passage that might seem a little bizarre, but I've always wanted to really look into this, and so it kind of gave me a, um, a reason to do so. So if you would stand, and I'm going to read from Luke chapter, or I'm sorry, Matthew chapter 10, Then I'm going to actually flip over to Luke uh, right after that. So if you want to get your fingers ready for that, Matthew chapter 10 verse 34 says this. This is Jesus speaking. Do not suppose that I have come to bring peace to the earth. I did not come to bring peace but a sword. For I have come to turn a man against his father, a daughter against her mother, a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law, and a man—a man's enemies will be the members of his own household. Turn to Luke chapter 12. Starting in verse 49. This is Luke's take on it. Very similar, but uh, two different perspectives Um most scholars would argue same event. I have come to bring fire on the earth and how I wish it were already kindled. But I have a baptism to undergo and what constraint I am under until it is completed. Verse 51. Do, not, do you think that I came to bring peace on earth? No, I tell you but division. From now on, there will be five in one family divided against each other, three against two and two against three. They will be divided father against son and son against father, mother against daughter and daughter against mother, mother-in-law Against daughter-in-law and daughter-in-law against mother-in-law. Pray with me if you would, God. As we uh, look into this passage or these passages, this event where Jesus says these words, I ask that um, that you would be present to us in a way that uh, is accessible, God. We bring all kinds of stories into this room, Um, folks who. Want to be here, folks who aren't sure why they're here, folks who were brought by somebody, um, all kinds of different things, um, all kinds of different strains on relationships and with jobs and uh, the things that this world has to offer us and throws at us, God. We bring all of that here to this place and in this moment. And I ask, it's my prayer, that you would be present to that, that you would be near us in ways that um, our ears can hear you, our eyes can see you, our hearts can sense you. And uh, wherever that takes us, we trust that you are present um, by your spirit and doing something that we cannot. And so we open ourselves up to that. We pray this in your name and by the power of your spirit. All God's people said. Amen. You can have a seat. Um, so when I was a kid, my mom, um, well, to this day, she still loves Christmas music. Any, any, anybody out there who just loves Christmas music? When I, I remember when I was a youngster, uh, it was... Uh, we had to wait till Thanksgiving came, and then it was kind of Christmas, right? And and you know, and I think maybe 25 years ago or 20 years ago, didn't they like, didn't they not decorate for Christmas until Thanksgiving came? Wasn't that kind of like protocol? But now, as you as you well know, I saw this guy the other day. Uh, it was like Halloween, and I saw Christmas lights out. I was like, seriously, what what gives? Um, but my mom would she would wait until after Thanksgiving to to start the Christmas music, and then. Um, as as we got older, she started, you know, kind of uh, breaking that rule. And now it's just like, as soon as Halloween happens, it's Christmas music at my mom's house. It's kind of going on stop. So I have all these memories of listening to Christmas music, mostly KTIS. Um, good, bad, or indifferent, that's what we listen to. And I remember a couple of songs on there that, that are just like, you know, will always stick with me. And they have... Uh, <laughs> And these verses that we just read seem to be at odds with at least a couple of those songs. One I can remember, like, Prince of Peace, Mighty God, the Holy One, Emmanuel. You know that one? You know, it's like, bum, 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 bum. At least with that one, it's like, Prince of Peace, Mighty God, Holy One, Emmanuel. Like, these verses seem to be at odds with what Jesus is saying. Um, this, This song that I so beautifully just sang for you. Um, is, is of course, from Isaiah chapter 9, verse 6, where it says, and and this is a very famous Christmas passage, for unto us a child is born, a son, to us a son is given, and the government will be on his shoulders, and he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, and Prince of Peace. So we have this prophecy about Jesus and being called the Prince of Peace. Of course, we have all these songs that talk about this. but then we have this passage in in Luke and in Matthew where Jesus himself says, I don't think that I've come to bring peace. So we have this, you know, a little contradiction. And what about Matthew 5, right? This is the Sermon on the Mount. Uh, Emily talked about turn the other cheek. This is, uh, this is where Jesus explicitly says, essentially, like, if you follow me, it might, the, the way of the kingdom and the way of Jesus is a way of nonviolence. It's a way of, you know, MLK-style sort of standing against the things that are, that we uh, that may not be of God in the world, but it's a it's a way of nonviolence. And Jesus explicitly calls to his disciples to oppose the things of the world, which are predicated on violence. So at the very least, there there seems to be an apparent contradiction to what Jesus is saying. On the one instance, he's portrayed as this nonviolent Jewish Messiah teacher, and on the other, who opposes violence and commands his followers to do the same. And on the other hand. Uh, We have Jesus himself saying that his very vocation, I have come not to bring peace, but to bring war. Um, What exactly is Jesus getting at? And how in the world can Jesus be the Prince of Peace? Uh, And and in order to do that, uh, in order to explore that, we have to do some groundwork. And I want to set this up and talk about a few of the things that I don't think Jesus is saying. So we're going to look at the the negation of it. What is Jesus not saying before we get to what Jesus is saying? Um, And I would say first and foremost that When we read this passage, and Jesus says in in Matthew chapter 10, where he says, don't think that I have come to bring peace, but a sword, um, I want to suggest that we don't have to take the word sword literally. Now, this may be, you know, um, basic hermeneutics or basic Bible uh, interpretation. But friends, this is where interpretation really matters, right? Because we read these two passages. We read this one where Jesus says, don't think I've come to bring peace. I've come to bring a sword, division, war, and then we read on, on the other hand, in the scriptures, in the inerrant, infallible, right, these words at which point kind of become not helpful, um, but we have Jesus saying this, and then we have the scriptures talking about Jesus saying that, in fact, Jesus is the Prince of Peace, the Mighty God, the Holy One, Emmanuel. This is where interpretation really matters, and it's in, and it's in passages like this where how you read the text Becomes absolutely critical in what Emily talked about, how what you choose to do day in and day out. I, I have heard of and I've read of well you know Bible-believing, Jesus-following people who use this text to essentially um, uphold or give reason for violence in the world. And then on the other hand, we have other Bible believing Jesus following Christians who would would say absolutely in no circumstance whatsoever do we turn to violence. That Jesus is is essentially, it's a way of pacifism. So how you read the text and how you interpret the text determines, right? You see what I'm saying? So I want to suggest, and I want to work this out, that when we read sword in Matthew 10 and in Luke 12, that it's not a literal usage of the word sword or war or division, but rather Jesus is doing something else. And I want to I show this. If you look at a couple of other passages in the scripture, certainly one could build a case in the Old Testament that when the word sword or war is used, it's often literal, and people are actually fighting with swords and killing one another. Okay? That's true. There are often other cases in the New Testament. Ephesians chapter 6 says, take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God. So Paul actually makes it very explicit. He uses this word sword, same word that's used in Matthew and in Luke. And he says, the sword of the spirit is actually, it's, it's the word of God. It's the truth of who, it's the revelation of who God is. Revelation 1 says, in his right hand, he held seven stars. Coming out of his mouth was a sharp, double-edged sword. His face was like the, sh- the sun shining in all its brilliance. Revelation 2 goes on, repent therefore, otherwise I will come soon to you and will fight against them with the sword of my mouth. In both instances, the word sword is obviously not literal. We're not talking about, unless, of course, we do have a sword swallowing, you know, guy in Revelation, which would be kind of cool, right? You know, a sword coming out of his mouth, right? It's obviously poetic. It's, it's imagery. It's metaphoric language that's being used. And I want to suggest, based on what we know of Jesus prior to this, this text rolls on, and, and what Jesus himself says in Matthew, in Matthew 5 and other f- passages, that when Jesus says, I've come to bring a sword, I've come to bring division, I've come to bring war, that we don't necessarily need to take that literally. And I would go as far as to say that we shouldn't take it literally, but that Jesus is doing something quite different than that. So let's say he's not using that word literally, then let's go on and say, I want to suggest that Jesus is not encouraging or condoning violence. Listen, the the mission of Jesus, I would say, is explicitly connected to the heart of God for the world. We've talked about this before at Awaken, where we want to look at the scriptures in a whole arc or a narrative, a story, what's happening in the story, and what is God up to in the story? And I think it's pretty clear in the story that what God's up to from a broad brushstroke of things is that there was a beautiful creation that has somehow been broken. And by all of the ways that we choose, other than peace, we live in a world filled with war, essentially. And that God has, by Jesus and through Jesus, is offering a way by which we can be in relationship and be reunited and and in relationship with the God who made us. This is the broad sweeping stroke of the scriptures, that we have this beautiful creation God made, that we've messed it up, that God creates a way by which we can be in relationship with God again. And that the whole thing is about the restoration of peace, what the Hebrews would call shalom. So the whole story is, is, is moving at this in every facet, and all of the different intricacies of the story. I want to suggest that this is the narrative, this is the meta-narrative, this is the nugget or the core of what the story is about. We've talked about this word shalom, um, universal flourishing, wholeness, and delight. So if we want to talk about peace, what is this word peace? Is it P-I, very, very well done, Luke, P-I-E-C-E, or is it P-E-A-C-E? Right. If we want to talk about what's the definition of peace, I think we have to go back in our history and connect to the people that we've come from, the Hebrews who had this word shalom, which is way more than the absence of war, but has this idea of universal for all of creation, all of God's creation, flourishing, wholeness, delight that there's this harmony that exists between all of the things that God made and that there isn't a disintegration of those things or a breaking apart or falling apart of those things, but rather an upholding and a generative thing that's happening when God's good world is working as God's good world should. So this is the Jewish or the Hebrew understanding of Shalom and I wanna suggest that this is the story or the telos, the end goal of where the scriptures is heading. Jesus explicitly prohibits violence towards others in his teachings in the Sermon on the Mount, and he makes it very clear that when we follow Jesus and follow, therefore, the kingdom way of life, that it's one that doesn't include violence towards others. But rather, and this is the crazy paradoxical nature of the gospel, right? Not through violence towards the other is the world made better, but actually, in Jesus' example, through this subversive empowerment Coming under, suffering for the other, turn the other cheek. In suffering, the power of God is displayed. It's bizarre, and it actually kind of rubs us the wrong way sometimes. It rubs me the wrong way sometimes. I had four brothers. I had plenty of opportunities to like, you know, haul off and pound somebody, and I was pounded many a time. Right? We've all been at all kinds of different levels. We've experienced this. But Jesus, Jesus explicitly calls his followers to this way. He, listen, when, when think about uh, at the end of Jesus' life, when he's coming towards the cross, they're in the Garden of Gethsemane, and Peter does what? He pulls out his sword and he cuts off the guy's ear. And what does Jesus do? He says, "Peter, you don't get it, do you? And he takes the guy's ear and he heals him. So Jesus, in his own action, stands against what Peter's up to in this provoking of and acting on violence. So I don't think when we read this passage, we need to think that Jesus is in any way encouraging or condoning violence towards others. Uh, last, before we kind of get to the construction of things, I, I want to say that Jesus is not explicitly encouraging the disowning of one's family. Right? We read in this passage, and 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 in others as well, where Jesus talks about, you know, um, that mothers will be against fathers and let the dead bury their dead. He has these bizarre kinds of phrases, and we might assume that Jesus could encourage or condone or invite someone to disown their own family. And I want to look at this from a, a, a more holistic perspective. I think one could argue that the, the Bible, and out, and even outside of the Bible through anthropology, if you're going to study how humans interact and how they've lived life on this planet, that the family is the fundamental building block of all relationships among humans. And if that's the case, the idea that Jesus, who represents the God who created the world that we live in, sort of being at odds with that, I think is, at, is, is not very logical, and I think it is at odds with what the scripture says about Jesus and Jesus's, and, and the view of, and the importance of the family in the story of God. I want to suggest that Jesus's words are explicitly about the kingdom of God in this passage, that when Jesus says don't think that I've come to bring peace but I've come to bring war or I've come to bring a sword which often and, and is talked about in scriptures that it divides it cuts it separates that Jesus is explicitly talking about the kingdom of God and its impact on the world and not necessarily or implicitly family and and these things come into play but explicitly what Jesus is talking about in Matthew 10 is in fact the kingdom of God and what happens when the kingdom of God is brought to bear in our lives and in this world. So, one can only deconstruct so long before it becomes annoying, and and I would say that one can only say, you know, this is what Jesus isn't saying so long before it becomes annoying. So, what is Jesus, in fact, saying? This is, of course, my take on this. Uh, We we talk a lot at Awaken about the fact that um, I'm not the answer man, and the person who's teaching is not the answer man. Uh, Rather... Uh, we hope that whatever happens here begins a conversation that, that ripples out from here. So where you do life together, or life groups or other places, that what we talk about and the things that are, that are brought here will provoke us to think more deeply about Jesus, the way of God, how we do that in the world. So here's what I think Jesus is up to. Number one, and I want to say it this way. We are at war with God. Now, if any of your fundamentalist bells are ringing, uh, stick with me, bear with me, okay? Uh, because I think often when, we've, when, when I've heard this, I'll, I'll use it I'll personally, uh, when I've heard this kind of language, we are at war with God, it's followed by very fundamentalist, conservative kinds of um, statements made after that. And I'm not saying that all fundamentalism and all conservative statements are bad, but the, when I experienced it, it often went to sort of a guilt trip, uh, like pack your bags, we're headed for a guilt trip, we're going on a guilt trip. And that's not what I want to do here. But I want to suggest that this idea of we are at war with God is absolutely critical. Maybe you could say it this way. Our choices and the way that we live, our selfishness often, this is fundamentally at odds with God and the way in which God created the world to be. So when we live life and we make particular choices, I want to suggest that our choices, our selfishness, the ways that we don't, the ways that we do this and not this, that that creates a position where we are at odds, we are at war with God. Every day we make choices and we participate in things that are at odds with God's intent for how the world was made to be. All of the ways that we have broken shalom, all of the ways that we go against the way God created the world, declare our opposition to the things of God and the, the creation of God. So, one of my favorite movies. Um, anybody watch Family Man? Any Family Man friends here? No? Nobody? None of you? Or at least you're not willing. Thank you, honey, I appreciate that. <laughs> you, honestly, you, you've, has anybody seen the movie Family Man with Nicolas Cage? Okay, thank you, yeah, yeah. Come on, don't leave I'm up here by my it's like I am naked in front of you guys, and you're just like, this is fun. Throw me a bone, so nicholas Cage uh you know he plays the best goon on the planet uh other than uh, other than the one leaving Las Vegas, where didn't he win an Oscar for that? I mean that was incredible. All the other roles he's ever played, Total Goon Factor, like the rock, do you remember that one? Just cut me some slack, man uh. Nicholas Cage, great movie, Family Man. There's this one part in this movie, and, and I, I typically watch this every Christmas. It's one of my favorite Christmas movies. I think it's brilliant. Love, love it. Um, there's this one part in the Family Man where, you know, Tia Leone, his wife, uh, they have, you know, this kind of epic moment in their relationship, and, and it's this whole deal. And at the end of it, she says, and listen, I choose us. Do you remember that? It's like, oh, sap. You know, she's like, I put, I choose us instead of you know, your career or you know, advancement or money or these kind of things. like At the end of the day, if we have to sell this house that I thought I was going to grow old with you in and sit on the front, you know, front porch in a rocker, if we have to sell this house and move to the city, I will because I choose us. In that moment, I want to suggest that that is the antithesis. That is the opposite of what we do by the choices that we make day in and day out in our relationship to God. Instead of saying, I choose us, we essentially say... I choose me. Right? From the smallest of things to the grandest on the scale, the move that we make is I choose me. And this is is the seed of truth in Genesis chapter 3. That begins the whole kind of spiral in the story of the scriptures. Where Adam and Eve are presented with this option of choosing the other, and the other being obviously Adam for Eve and Eve for Adam, but the other being relationship with God, and they choose self. And this is, this is this, you could insert this equation or this variable into all of the equations of the story of the Bible, and I would suggest this is your answer. Typically, we call this sin, And I want to reframe it, and I want us to think about it as a choice that we make. We were created for relationship with the other. This is how we were made. This is the way God intended us to live. And we choose self over and over and over again, which is the antithesis of the kingdom. So when Jesus shows up on the scene and he's bringing the kingdom of God to bear, which can be connected back to Genesis 1 and 2, the way in which God intended the world to be, And Jesus recognizes that the very thing that he brings, the very vocation, the purpose of why he's here actually stands diametrically opposed to the tendency and default mode of our hearts. It's no wonder that he says, don't think that I've come to bring peace because what I've come to bring will separate. It stands at odds and it will critique when we choose me instead of other." We see this play out all the time, this conflict in us, that we know what we want to do, we know what's right, we know what we should do, and yet we still do dumb things. Paul talks about it in Romans 7. He says, I do not understand what I do, for what I do want to, what I do, this is always good, you got to read this slow, for what I want to do, I do not do, but what I hate, I do. And if I do what I do not want to do, I agree the law is good. As it is, it's no longer I myself who do it, but it is sin living in me. For I know that good itself does not dwell in me, that it's my sinful nature. For I've, I have the desire to do what's good, but I cannot carry it out. Man, does that ring true for anybody? I know what is right. I'd, for I have the desire to do what is good, but I cannot carry it out. This is where I think we have to begin, right? If we're going to try to understand what Jesus is doing in this passage, we have to start, we have to back up a little bit and say, fundamentally, we are at war with God. That the way that we, the, the, the disposition of our heart, the inclination of our heart, we know what we, des- we desire to do, but we cannot carry it out. That we are at war with the way in which God intended the world to be, and the choices that we make day in and day out prove that to be true. Now, here's the tricky part. The life, death, and resurrection provide a way by which we can be in relationship with God. This is the this is the craziness of the gospel. This is the scandalous nature of the invitation of God, that while we do this dumb stuff day in and day out, God invites us to be in relationship with God through the person of Jesus by faith. But here's the tricky part. Peace plants a seed in us. Peace plants a seed in us. When we come into relationship with God through Jesus, I want to suggest that we become uniquely aware of the ways in which we participate and create brokenness, pain, and suffering in our world. We recognize our need for what Jesus offers, which is a way by which we can come into relationship with God, with our neighbor, those around us, and even ourselves, which I would suggest there's a brokenness in, in us. And when this happens, a seed is planted in us, and, or an awareness should come to us about the way in which we live in the world. Now, uh, just a couple, last week we, we had this conversation, uh, Awaken Unfiltered, and we were talking about the, conver- or the the topic of feral children came up. Do you guys know what feral children are? These are kids who are essentially like sometimes raised by animals uh, in the wild or they're abandoned or they're, I mean, it's horrific this, the, what happens to these, these kids that they've studied, but it's called feral kids or feral children. And, and I'm going to tie this up here. Stick with me, Okay. Feral children lack a sense of awareness. They lack a sense of I. They lack a sense of self. Like they can't differentiate themselves from another. Okay? This is an absolutely crucial and critical part of the human development process by which we can differentiate ourselves from another human being and call uh, refer to myself as an I. Okay? This has all kinds of implications scientifically, psychologically. We, we don't have time to get into it all. Feral children lack this fundamental capacity to differentiate from another. The reason being is directly connected to language. Language is the key to the differentiation or the, the process of differentiation for human beings. So when we learn to communicate or use language, it's this complex series of things that happens in our brain and in the chemicals in our body and the way in which we see the world and see others around us that we can differentiate and actually become a self so for feral children language becomes this key to awareness it becomes a key to a door that opens them up into the possibility of actually being human because when that doesn't happen the capacity to be in relationship with another is absolutely off the table the capacity to give and receive love for which we were created for is totally off the table. It's impossible because they cannot differentiate. Do you see what I'm saying? So language becomes the key that unlocks the capacity or gives them an awareness of what they were created for. I want to suggest that when we come into a relationship with God, it's, it's an, it should be and a key that unlocks the door to an awareness. And it, and it becomes, to use the words of the matrix, a splinter in our mind. Because we now recognize what we experience in our self, this connection to and relationship to God, is absent in the world in so many ways. One must only look out their window or watch the news. And a relationship with God plants a seed in us that should give this splinter in our mind where what we experience in ourselves, in our relationship with God, is absent from the world around us. And this is why, so often at Awaken, I'm pushing us to action. I'm pushing us beyond belief. To use the old Petra song, beyond belief, beyond belief. I'm pushing us beyond belief to action, to doing something in the world because our experience of peace that we receive when we are in relationship with God is not the norm for the world that we live in and yet it should be. Can I get an amen? Amen. That this is the way the world should be and so if we follow Jesus and we've experienced reconciliation with God, peace with God, then it should be this splinter in our mind when we come into contact with the things in the world that are not as they should be or not as they could be, or not the way God intends them to be. When we experience war, when we experience suffering, when we experience pain and evil and all of these horrible things on the smallest to the grandest of the scale, that, it, that peace with God actually plants a seed in us. And when it grows, it should disrupt, it should be a rupture in our spirit. And if it's not, hello, Joe, got a problem. I'll leave it at that. And I think if I could close this up, I would, I would want to suggest that what Jesus says when he says, I've come to bring, I've not come to bring peace, but I've come to bring division, is a statement about the commitment or the, or the, the, the call of Jesus, the call of the kingdom. And you could maybe say it this way, that our commitment to Jesus supersedes even that of our commitment to our family. Jesus says some crazy things. He says things like deny yourself, pick up your cross and follow me. You cannot serve both God and mammon, which is a Greek kind of God of money. You cannot, he says, let the dead bury their dead, but as for you, follow me. He says he who is no fool who gives up a life he cannot keep to gain a life he cannot lose. He says some kind of crazy things and essentially I would suggest that all of them are getting at the idea that the call of Jesus is one that encompasses every aspect of our lives that there is no allegiance higher than to the one that we have to Jesus. And so when Jesus says, I've come not to bring peace, but I've come to bring division. I've come to bring a sword. I wonder if it isn't that Jesus is saying that when you follow Jesus, often it will, your commitment to this kingdom way of life will be tested at every level. Politically. Familially. Communally. And this call to reconciliation, to peace, to forgiveness, to mercy, to grace, to love, which is the way of Jesus, is the one that we've been called into And that this stands at odds with our experience of the world, and often even the closest members of our relationship network, family. And I know that some of you 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 know this. And so, as we approach Christmas and as we experience Advent, I I guess I would ask this one question, as we as I close, and we invite you to a time of worship uh, and singing. Is there one move toward peace that I can make? Whatever situations you walked in the door with, you're filtering what's being offered this morning through that. And I want to just suggest this one question as we close Is there one move towards peace? Universal flourishing, wholeness, and delight, relational flourishing. Is there one move that you can make that you feel maybe even prompted in this moment or in these moments? Is there one move towards peace that you can make? God, as we think and contemplate what it means to be peacemakers, what it means to be people of peace, what it means to be people who follow a Jesus who offers shalom, peace. And as we anticipate the birth of the celebration of the birth of Jesus. God, would you just ever so lovingly and graciously uh, make us aware of the splinter in our mind, ways in which we encounter things that are not as they should be. And would you invite us, empower us with the courage that we need to be people of peace in the world.
0: online at www.awakenedcommunity.com or on Facebook at www.facebook.com backslash awaken Community or on Twitter at awaken Community. See you next time.